you know, the, in the conversation, we touch on why some treatment models might attract emotionally avoidant therapists. Um, we also touch on whether schema therapy has become oversimplified or how it might become oversimplified. And also why is being comfortable with not knowing so important for therapists? And we cover a lot of ground, including the fear of litigation for individuals and organisations, the influence of insurance companies, which means money, of course. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today we're really pleased to welcome along someone who I met when I was working in the FENS unit and we had him come over and run some specialist schema workshops for the staff within the service. And I'm doing a very long preamble because I know that I will make an error with his name, which he'll be very forgiving about, but I would really encourage you to take a look and see how his name's spelt. But Mikhail van Rieschrick is a clinical psychologist and the CEO of GCRACT Mental Health Care Institute in the Netherlands. He's an accredited supervisor and personal therapist in CBT, as well as individual and group schema therapist and also offers specialist group therapy. And Mikhail regularly runs schema therapy workshops in the Netherlands and worldwide and is co-author and or editor of several schema books and articles. And he also researches schema group therapy. So really nice to connect with you again, Mikhail, and have you on the podcast. So really pleased to get this chance to talk with you again. Thank you for your invitation there. And a pleasure to be here. Hi, Michelle. Very nice to meet you. Um, you've already brought a critical eye to some of the questions that we outlined at the beginning, which is very helpful. And we always try and be as flexible as possible about how questions go and how they're followed up in any case. So if we begin, so you're very much associated with a form of therapy known as schema therapy, and, and you've deleted the focus from that, I think. I'd be interested to know quite why you've done that. Yeah. Well, it, it used to be a schema-focused therapy in, in, in the back days, it's, um, but it suggested that it's so focused on schemas per se, um, and not including the mode. So I think it's something from the last couple of years that I hardly see a schema focused anymore and that I always see uh, schema therapy. Um, and, and I think it has to do with that, but it might also be that it's just easier and shorter to write, so. Right. Well, I find that interesting because and Naomi and I have talked about this a bit uh, in the past because I come from a, a more straightforward psychotherapy background and I've always had a slight objection to schema therapy because you know, to me it kind of seemed to make the whole idea of the personality rather episodic or chapterized or 
Um, and, and that sometimes one would hear people talking about this is my schema, or I've got this schema and that schema, which always seemed a bit concrete to 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 me. Am I am I wrong in thinking that? No, I, I, I can imagine that you think it. And I, I think in some cases, it's also a kind of pseudo-mentalization what people use, simply saying, oh, you know, it's my emotional deprivation schema or it's my unrelenting standard schema or it's my detached protector. Um, but then it's just naming and it's questionable if they really owe it and if they really understand it. And I think there might be a category of therapists who have this tendency to say, you know, these are your schemas, these are your modes, and let's categorize it and let's do all the work on that. Um, and forgetting the importance of mentalization-based therapy, um, forgetting the realization that it's so more complex, that it's more about a profile, several dy dynamics, attachment, things like that, which it used to be. That's, that's the original model. The original model is that things like attachment, um, interpersonal relationships should be the focus and not just categorizing uh, using schemas and modes. So, so it's a... Uh, an approach really which in some cases has become oversimplified yeah yeah and, and and not to oversimplify it but it might be some people with a cbt background who try to simplify it oh right why, why do you say that um well i i i think there there are Two, two things. Sometimes we make the world too complex, so it's good to have some simplification. The other thing is that um, some people go into schema therapy, have a CBT background, and they easily recognize those, well, what you sometimes hear about schemas. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of thoughts. So they think it's quite similar with CBT. Um, whereas schemas actually present more, they also present the bodily sensations, the memories, smells, connecting, connected to this kind of specific triggering uh, in you. I think um, the, the interest, the question is quite interesting, though, David, because I, I I recognize what you're what you're saying in in terms of how some people are, but I've also seen people use it in that kind of simplistic way but it, it reminds me a little bit of internal family systems at times because it's almost like by personifying the schema it allows people a way to kind of like look at a part of themselves which might at times behave in ways which might not be very helpful for them and have a bit more compassion for that part of of the self I think so um I, I think I have heard, yeah it can help to make it yeah I have found. heard I have heard it used yeah. in in quite simplistic ways but I've also seen people do some really great work um as you say kind of like amplifying amplifying with um that and then being able to work with it almost a bit objectively um thank you so one of the things that you do do uh Michelle is you run specialist 
five-day retreats of group schema therapy for therapists. Why, why do therapists need special groups? Well, I'm not sure that they need special groups. Um, in, in, in the Netherlands, it's mandatory when you want to become a psychotherapist or clinical psychologist or psychiatrist that you do have 50 hours of personal therapy. You can do that individually or you can do it in groups. With groups, it used to be that it was allowed at least by some teachers um, that you would do it in a mixed group. So a group with patients and professionals. And for therapists, they um, did find that sometimes scary. Uh, while running such a group, I've seen how refreshing it can be. Refreshing because a patient not being skilled in psychology, so not saying, oh, that is this schema or that mode, but simply saying, why are you doing this? Can be so helpful to, to wake people up. But then a couple of years ago, they said, no, that's not good. It must be a safe place for the therapists. And patients, um, when they have personality problems, they are so completely different than the therapist, so they cannot connect with each other. I disagree, but, you know, this, this, this was a few, and... It was a few by people who were able to decide what would happen or not. Um, I, th I think the disadvantage, but, but that's the same with uh, uh, patient groups. If you solely focus on a specific type of person, so for the patient's groups, let's do a schema group for only borderline patients. Um, you don't have the effect of a real mini society in the group where you can try out with all the differences which are there in a normal society. So it's highly likely that in the therapist group, you can have this thing like we as therapists or in a borderline group, we as borderline. And it's a way of shutting out society and differences. So it sounds as if you don't think particular kinds of issues might crop up uniquely in a group of, of therapists. I haven't seen them. Right. Hmm. So we're very good, though, at suggesting to our patients that they should be genuine, they should be authentic. Do you think in the groups that you run, therapists struggle a bit with that. Are we a bit hypocritical, do you think? I, I, I think uh, some of us are. And it's easier to say to your patients, be authentic, be open, be straight, 
don't avoid. Well, when you look at the, the therapist groups, there's so much avoiding. It's such a high effect phobia. It's so difficult for most of them to be really vulnerable in an authentic, open way. Uh, it's, it's really where they have to work on in, in the personal therapy. So, yes, I, th I think we're sometimes hypocritical. I guess um, if people are drawn to helping caring professions, they're people who are more often people are more comfortable in being a, in the role of kind of like giving support. But I guess to really be able to do that in a way that has has value, one has to be comfortable with accepting support also or knowing what some of the barriers are to accepting support. And I, I suppose you can see why that might be easier to get people thinking about that kind of question from if they're in mixed mixed groups. But also, you know, if we're to role model to our patients that emotion isn't something to be scared of, that sadness can be tolerated and managed and and it doesn't have to mean everything falls apart. You have to be capable of role modeling your emotional reaction to to things with your patients, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think there is a lot of counter-dependence in, uh, in therapists who mostly like to be in this superwoman and superman syndrome. Um, but then, for instance, if you would like to do limited reparenting, which is part of schema therapy, that's pretty difficult if you can't do it authentic. Sure, everybody can say, oh, I'm so sorry for you. That's a trained sentence. But to really have the feeling in your voice, the real emotion, and to express it in your face so that the client can really connect with it and with you, that's a whole different ballgame. And I guess there you're really drawing on that you know you're talking about the ability to form a real emotional connection in relation with the with the client the patient aren't you in a way that if you're just talking about things in an intellectual way as you spoke about possibly some cbt therapists at the start Although i have to say not to be controversial david but i think that i don't think cbt is the only model that that cultivates intellectualism as a way of managing emotions in therapy <laughs> I, I i think the psychoanalytical <laughs> therapist can do it excellent as well i, I think that's what naomi was hinting at uh, somehow yeah <laughs> not that not that i'm suggesting that that applies to you but certainly i think you know uh, probably any model that that isn't focus isn't really heavily focused on emotion can easily become a, a uh, intellectual exercise rather than something that really resonates at a deeper level. I know exactly what you mean and it's one of the things that um, led to me spending less and less time with psychoanalytic psychotherapists and and sometimes one could see that people were saying things really for well they were showing off uh, often and anyway <laughs> anyway so, Michelle, 
Sorry, were you going to say Naomi? <laughs> we've just alienated. Yeah, we've just alienated <laughs> alienated lots of our lots and lots of listeners in our sweeping statements about various we models have, yes. of therapy. They can come on. They can come on and argue back. <laughs> exactly, and and if they're strong enough, and if they really want to to feel it, they uh, they can take it on. They accept it. They know that for some people, which we said, some people, this holds true. Yes. Go on. You're going to say something, then. No, I wasn't sure if you were. I was going to move on to the next question, but you might have something well, we, to we say. Well, we were going to ask whether Michelle thought there were features of our health systems and working in our health systems that uh, uh, pushed yeah, some of our therapists and carers to towards treatment. Do you think that's right? Yeah, um, I I think if you look at most training programs, it's about techniques and attitudes, regardless which psychotherapy it is. This is the right way. This is how you have to do it. And I don't think there are a lot of classes around now sit here and feel and share what you feel in an authentic way and how do you do that and give each other feedback on that and how do you really connect if if we talk about connecting between patients or, or with patients um i should say it's it is always like you can say this you can do that you can use that technique or you can stay absent or you can go to the whiteboard. It, it's rarely about, okay, this patient is saying I'm feeling suicidal and what in you resonates and share it now to the patient. I think one of the things with training as a certainly as a psychologist and from what I see of other forms of therapist as well is that uh, perhaps not really helping the student become comfortable with uncertainty and I remember when I was training that uh, people were clamoring for pure models so and, and I think that's why CBT is so popular because I think the, the structure of CBT gives the impression that there's a, a set thing to do in in the therapy session that you can plan for it and it's going to go in a straightforward way as long as you're a good enough therapist um, and, and actually I think therapy is much more like whitewater rafting that you learn strategies and techniques for managing but you have to read the current of the river and the flow of the river and so you might know that there's a bend in the river at that particular point but you don't know quite how the water's going to tumble and you have to be able to lean in and read in um, to the situation and I think maybe we're not we're just not that great at helping people manage their anxiety um, about not knowing you know ultimately I think when you start off as a therapist there's a lot of not knowing and we get more comfortable with it as as time goes on that every time we meet a new patient we don't know how it's going to go because two, the, the chemistry between two people is always going to differ from one person 
to the next but maybe that's what an experienced therapist gets comfortable with the, the kind of not knowing and and at the same time I think it also has to do with the profile of those starting to do these educational uh, programs to become a psychotherapist, that they want to be this superwoman or superman. They want to be adored. They want to know that what they do is very helpful. Because if you would address it to uh, those people, they would say, yeah, sure, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have a PowerPoint with some tips? Uh, by the way, I'm already working for four years with clients. So what you're telling me is not new. That's, that's almost an immediate response, a line of defense. Um, and, and, and I think peer supervision, on the other hand, is also something where we perhaps sometimes do things wrong. Peer supervision is a lot about talking about the client and how to solve it. And David, what you mentioned, to show off that you're the best or even have a better intervention for your colleague. So why, as a colleague, should you say, you know, I'm feeling just miserable or vulnerable and I don't need advices or techniques or to hear your wonderful insight. Please stand next to me. Yeah, I think maybe sometimes the selection processes uh, amplify that dynamic as well, don't they? Certainly, I don't know about in the Netherlands, but in the UK, to get access on, it's really, really competitive to get on a clinical psychology training course, but because it's they're funded, so it's a, a great privilege to to get that that higher level of training. And I suppose what they seem to do is target the most intellectually able people to get on the courses so if you haven't got a two one or a first you've got no chance really of getting on unless you can go and do another qualification to prove that you're intellectually capable and so what you've got are courses which choose people who are very bright and very much in their heads perhaps but actually they might might not be the best people to to be sat alongside you and you think you see something very similar in medicine you know that some of the best some of the you know some of the best doctors might not have been the best performing in terms of their exams but medicine again kind of like amplifies that need to be academically capable but actually those people might not have the best bedside manner when it comes to, to I mean I think we've all seen examples of that probably as well but are there, are there other elements of the healthcare system that contribute to issues that that therapists might bring to therapy because I, I was just thinking about uh, certainly within the UK, they're just through a massive, there's a fear of litigation. So certainly within the NHS, you can see there's a fear of accepting responsibility when things go wrong. You know, when you think about the, the bigger system, that rather than just apologise and hold their hands up, that massive mistakes can be made. And even when there's people speaking up, um, staff speaking up about bad practice, that the the hospital or the trust might be very very defensive rather than holding their hands up and I you know thinking about what that might be like at an individual level are we working in systems where it's not possible to admit to mistakes um 
Yeah, I, I sometimes um, think so. Um, at, at least if you think for, for the Netherlands, we have insurance companies. So, and they're, they're always thinking about the Mental Health Care Institute is um, an institute which wants money who will likely uh, do some fraud so there there's this always this not really connecting with the company and with its employees uh, of course um which at least give at that therefore a negative vibe i'm not so sure whether the same is within a mental health care institute uh, in the Netherlands. Um, but that, uh, sure, that, that, of course, it is everywhere, but I don't have specific examples uh, of that in my mind. Okay. Okay, thank you. But you also work with people in a small mental health unit that you set up or you were instrumental in setting up. How did this come about? Um, well, after working a couple of years in a larger mental health care institute, um, I thought it's after the second or third, third reorganization, I thought, okay, this is my time to go. Um, I always have in mind that um, when I start to become crocky, bored, uh, or cynical, I have to change something. I don't want to be one of those people who is saying, well, I'm just waiting for my pension, doing my thing, sleeping in my room, and very cynical to other people, to the Institute, or to my colleagues, um, I, I think then then it's time to change your life. That's that's not healthy for for many people. Uh, and I thought it, if we have a smaller institute, we can do less, but there is more attention for patients, and there is more attention for the staff uh, and among the staff members. And that's that's how it works out. Um, I worked there as a clinical psychologist, uh, and of course uh, as one of the two uh, leaders. But as a clinical psychologist, I mainly do schema group therapy or uh, some individual therapies not so much individual schema therapy um more uh, psychodynamic uh, individual therapy so david there we uh, we meet perhaps um and and then a lot about attachment uh, issues i love to have cases with big attachment issues and 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 see if we we can do some some healing uh, there. So, uh, so Michael, a couple of questions spring from that for me in terms of how do you make use in uh, what what 
what is it about schema therapy that which really lends itself to the group process? Um, firstly, well, I'm I'm not sure if if it's the only psychotherapy uh, form, but what I like about groups is that it is a a mini society. You see how people interact with each other, and not only in your room, only with you. So you see different responses with different people. And it's easier because there's more pressure in a group uh, to see schemas being triggered than in an individual session. If you're a nice, warm therapist, it's less likely that schemas or modes get activated. Um, you have to make mistakes before they're, they're triggered. And in the group, all people are different. So mistakes, or should I say just normal life things, happen all the time. I guess you're also highlighting how easy it is to do therapy in a way where there might be some uh, subconscious arrangements to have cozy conversations where things are comfortable and how important it is to have um, ruptures in, in therapy um, or some degree of chaos or disruption in order to do something that's therapeutically useful or, or meaningful. One of my analytic supervisors in the past said when you start to drink coffee with your client, it's time to stop. <laughs> and you kind of answered my second question in that, which was why were you not doing schema therapy in, in an individual format? Um, so you, you answered that at the same, same time. David. Mikhail, can you tell us something about your research into schema group therapy? Um, I'm doing research on schema group therapy, first of all, because I like it. Um, secondly, I like to find out what works for whom. Uh, and specifically looking at what schemas and modes uh, predict uh, if people um, get cured or not. It is planned that I will participate in a research project where um, we will also look at group cohesion, group climate. And that's quite often a very difficult thing and not so often being understudied. Um, but that's something I try to promote in that research group. We really now have to look more and more at group therapy elements um, and not only on an individual uh, level. I think that's such an interesting point because I think certainly in the prison system in the UK, there's a lot of um, a lot of cognitive behaviourally run groups, and everything most of what's offered to prisoner people in prison in the UK is offered in a group form, with and with the exception of therapeutic communities where obviously they've they've deliberately chosen a different therapeutic model. The, um, you know, the vast majority of what people get is CBT focused groups, but by people who don't really have a background in 
group processes or thinking about groups and it sounds like you're you're really speaking to the importance of having that kind of knowledge or training even if you're running a cbt focused group that you would need to have some group training yeah yeah i i would say everybody who is running a group should at least have some basic course and if you're running a training okay one day perhaps but if you're really doing group therapy yes you have to which is not so much the case here in in the netherlands as well it's more like you're trained in cbt or schema therapy and your manager is saying now you're going to run a group because that's financially attractive and somebody perhaps even says oh yeah and it might even work oh okay great uh, now run this group yeah i think that's that i mean that scenario is i think it's a very common scenario that people see it as being a cost a cost saving venture or even if they might buy into the idea because they think there are merits in in running a group but it's it's rare that that the people running the group have the exist you know we used to send people on group analysis train for the first year the foundation course of group analysis training to help them um feel more comfortable in groups but it was it was also really interesting because the the staff who hadn't done that training were much less comfortable with running groups and actually were much more likely to stick to rigid content. So we'd hoped that therapists would run, whether it be a schema group or whatever group, working with the rough themes that were around. But actually what often happened was people became hung up on PowerPoints and and a rigid, rigid, rigid structure, which, which isn't really useful at all, I don't believe. It's, it becomes education rather than rather than therapy. And how do you think the schema model is likely to evolve in the future, Mikael? Where do you see developments likely to likely to go? Will we see any incorporation, more incorporation of the body, as in other therapeutic approaches, or do you see something different for the future of schema therapy? Um, yeah, I think we're not there yet. Uh, Art therapy is more and more introduced in schema therapy. That, that that's one step, I think. Uh, EMDR uh, incorporating in schema therapy is one step. Body therapy. Some people might already do it, but I think for most people, it's still one step too far. Um, it's it's almost um and 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 that's also development at this moment that is more important to find more schemas and more modes than um to let that more cognitive part go set it aside and focus can we learn from from other uh, therapies uh, one other thing which is also currently in development is um, looking for positive schemas and using positive psychology concepts in schema therapy. That's really interesting because I think certainly one of the things you notice with forensic populations is and an increasingly actually notice in private practice that people's ability to tolerate some of the more positive emotions like pride and joy 
um, actually it can be as painful for people to push themselves to to learn to sit with those kind of feelings, uh, which must mean there's sort of, you know, schema that underpins some of that as well that needs some work on to be, you know, the, that it's okay to to prioritise yourself at times, that you deserve to to be happy. Um, so it's really interesting to hear that development. What's the difference between a schema and a mode? Sorry, one more time, David. What What is the difference between a schema and a mode? A schema is more trait-like, a mode is more state-like, and a mode consists of several schemas being triggered so it might be that emotional deprivation is triggered unrelenting standards is triggered failure of achievement is triggered and you get into this vulnerable child part or it might be that you get very detached that you don't feel anything anymore so then you're probably more in the mode of the detached protector. Okay. I uh, I remember once uh, when I was in Aix, Aix-en-Provence, I went to a uh, uh, an exhibition of painting. It was outside in a park, which is totally irrelevant to what I'm talking about, but it was outside in a park. And I came across this... Uh, woman whose who's all of her pictures, they were very big canvases, um, but they were made up of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tiny little squares. And I, I spoke to her and I, I asked her if I could take a photo. Um, and she said, yes, of course. And I took the photo because um, I thought this is the closest we can get to how I think the internal world operates with these hundreds and hundreds of different aspects to it, which I suppose is what you're suggesting when you say we need to find more schemas. Yeah, but on the other hand, I think we shouldn't find more schemas. We shouldn't find more modes. Um, it makes it makes it too complex, and sometimes it is just a way of saying the same thing, but you want a black or white instead of saying, for instance, the vulnerable child can have many faces because it's so complex inside of us. But then they think, oh yeah, but you have the vulnerable child. Uh, but sometimes you feel abandoned. We need to have an abandonment uh, child. And, and, and so on, and so on. It's making me think of uh, Marissa Peer, who I don't know a huge amount about rapid transformational therapy, but understand it's a form of hypnotherapy. But it's really centred around the fact that we all have this underlying belief that we're not enough and that actually that's what therapy. That, so she claims to treat people in sort of two, three or four sessions simply by addressing this underlying 
feeling and belief of not being good enough, not being adequate, not being enough in ourselves. And ultimately that being the root of, of all problems, if I've understood her marketing um, <laughs> literature correctly. So, uh, Michelle, you've had time to think about this now. How do you look after yourself? <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's a difficult question. Um, I'm, I, I mean, I had two answers. The easy answer is always, oh, making sure to have enough hobbies, uh, not working all the time, things like that. The more realistic answer is that that is always a struggle and perhaps it should be a struggle. It's always something I have to work on. Um, and the thing what helps me, but not always succeeding it, is listening to what my mind and body is telling me. So what I mentioned, for instance, um, about why I uh, started setting up an, a small mental health care institute, just listening to this feeling like I start to detach, I start to become cynical, um, I start to lose interest and take that very seriously. That's really, I think that's a really interesting answer and I don't think it's one we've had before actually, but I think there is something really honest about that and also can't help but notice that really incorporating the body into your answer you know that you're actually you're listening to the own wisdom that that's inside your own body and and responding to that and and nurturing that and giving giving it what nourishes it um rather than telling us some trite um thing activity that you do thank you really enjoyed thank the you. conversation it was lovely to see thank you for again. having me so a real pleasure, real pleasure meeting you, Michelle. I'd Same love here. to talk with you. Thank you for meeting you, David. Yeah, so listening back on this conversation, what I really enjoyed was talking to somebody who's got so much experience of a treatment model that actually they can really get into the depths of of analysing it and, and about what works and what doesn't work. And I thought... You know, in the conversation, we touch on why some treatment models might attract emotionally avoidant therapists. Um, we also touch on whether schema therapy has become oversimplified or how it might become oversimplified. And also why is being comfortable with not knowing so important for therapists? I also thought there were some interesting reflections on therapeutic narcissism and also why you might need group therapy if you're running a CBT group, a group therapy training, why you might need group therapy training if you're running a CBT group, because I think that's something that gets neglected. Actually, we tend to assume that um, if you're trained in a therapeutic model, you can just get on with running a group um, without thinking about some of the group processes that inevitably happen. I, I agree. It was a very interesting conversation with uh, Mika uh, and I thought you made some of the most important uh, contributions to the uh, conversation. Oh, thank you. <laughs> when you highlighted the importance of making a connection uh, of authenticity and emotionality uh, and that fitted in very well with what 
Mikhail was saying. And I have to go on and say something else because you jokingly mentioned that we had insulted the therapeutic approach of many of our listeners. Well, I'm sure our listeners are very genuine and authentic, but the, the conversation took me back to the days when I worked at the Warnford Hospital in Oxford. So this is in the um, late 80s, I suppose. And the professorial unit there had close connections with Aaron Beck, who was one of the founders of uh, CBT, and he would come over and talk to us. And he was a very avuncular figure. And um, But that was you know, the beginnings of the um, CPT industry here the, in this country and from that various psychologists have gone on to develop you know, greater things. But, but the issue was that it was presented as a real paradigm shift, which was threatening really to you know, most other schools. Well, particularly like the psychodynamic um, school that I was uh, working in and really continued to be a, a member of despite my uh, disaffection in some ways. But I still think that coming back are these key points that you made about being authentic and engaged with the people you're working with. Thanks for sharing that. It's quite, that's really interesting to hear about about Beck. And um, it reminded me of um, a conversation with a patient who spoke about psychotherapy at times being a little bit like giving someone squash without any any water and that actually too much was expected to be made of it. And that's what she liked about, about schema therapy. Um, but I was also reminded in the conversation about how uh, certainly as a, a, a trainee that the reason that CBT based approaches were very popular was because it, it gave people a structure and it gave people a sense of there was something to do. And, that safety for novice therapists makes it very appealing, uh, but also I think people can get caught up in that and then never move beyond it and never get into thinking about some of the processes that are, are so centre stage for other approaches like psychodynamic psychotherapy, for instance. Um, and also it took me into thinking about AI and how actually if therapists are at risk from AI, as we keep reading about, I think the model that's most likely to be threatened by that is CBT, where there is so much structure that it's probably quite easy to to replicate that. Whereas actually to be an authentic person in a room with somebody and be following the process, you know, quite often it, that's not what is said that becomes so important, but it's how it's said and the the uh, you know the synthesizing of the two people being in a room together which I think would be quite hard for a, a robot to replicate that's brilliant that's very well put <laughs>